my name is Diana King, and this is How I Create. Welcome to This Is How We Create, a show that digs deeper into the creative life of contemporary artists of color. Discover what feeds their creativity and how they've found or are finding their artistic voice. Through these intimate and candid conversations, you'll gain insights into the lives of creative professionals of color that are hard to find anywhere else. I'm Martine Severn, and this is How We Create. Today on the show, we have portrait and commercial photographer Diana King, who is based in Nashville, Tennessee. Diana has accumulated a diverse portfolio that encompasses working with well-known brands, advertising agencies, and talent. Diana studied film production and cinematography in college and then worked in film production with top production companies and high-profile directors in commercial broadcasts for years before transitioning to photography. This experience working in production helped Diana transition to photo production, which then led her on a path to becoming a photographer and a fantastic photographer at that. Diana, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. I wanted to start out by talking a little bit about how you discovered that you were very creative and how you decided to pursue the arts. For a long time, I didn't really think I was that creative, to be honest. I first discovered photography. It was in high school when we had to do a paper on any sort of photography and I chose fashion photography. And that's when I came upon all the great, you know, classic fashion photographers that, you know, like Richard Avedon and Irving Penn, you know, that led me to taking a black and white photo class in junior college. I have this like distinct memory of my professor giving out, you know, assignments to everybody to photograph people and most people they ended up shooting their subjects to be homeless people or like, you know, like this dark and deep subject. And I ended up photographing actors in costume at my local theater. When he did the review, he said, these photos are okay, but there's no substance behind it. And I remember walking away and like this one girl in the class just kind of whispered to me and goes, oh, but these make me so happy. That was just enough to just plant a seed in my head, but I never thought that it was something that I wanted to go and do a profession in. When I decided to go to film school, it wasn't really to be creative. I just wanted to be a part of something that could create. Oh, that's beautiful. What are some of the skills that you learn in film school that you've put to use in your own photography work? What I did find out that I was good at in film school is that I'm a really good producer. Knowing how to organize a crew, finding a location, managing time, knowing equipment, those were all really valuable skills that I learned to have in film school. But I didn't really leave film school feeling creative. I went and studied cinematography. And then what I did was, you know, from cinematography, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I can learn lighting. I could like learn how to do camera. And but back in 2005, 2006, when we were still shooting on film cameras on 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter film cameras, you had to work your way up the ladder of the film industry. So you start off as like a camera PA, then you start off as like a film loader and then a, a second camera assistant, first camera assistant, then maybe if you're lucky, you could move up to be a camera operator, and then maybe one day a DP, a director of photography. Like that wasn't a creative world for me. So I was like, okay, I don't know what I want to do anymore. That's not something I want to do. So I just did production. And then that was how I transitioned after film school. And I got work working in production on commercials broadcast sets. So can you tell us the story of how you went from working in film and working in commercials and and doing and in broadcasting to photography? Can you tell me the story of that arc? I started off after graduating from college working for a really well-known high-end commercial director. I still remember him telling me, you think you're creative, but you're not. And like that always stuck with me. You know, it's 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 interesting, like the small things that you remember throughout your life. And that was like right when I graduated college it was my first job out. And it had a very 
distinct impression on my ability. Like I let this guy have an impact on me. So I basically said, okay, well, I'll just do what I know I'm good at, which is organization. So I started working productions and PAing, and then that led me to get a full-time job at a production company as a production coordinator, where I would coordinate schedules and, you know, directors travel, crew schedules, find locations, all that fun stuff, but not fun at all. And I was really miserable. And one day I realized that I've always wanted to do photography, but I never let myself do it. But I don't know anything about it because the world is so different from, you know, commercials to fashion photography. So I, I, I stumbled upon like a few CDs. For some reason, I, I saw like this photographer that I really loved who photographed Dido. I looked her up and I saw that she she is this British fashion photographer based in Los Angeles. And I reached out to her and I said to her that I don't know anything about photography, but I am willing to quit my job tomorrow and intern for you and work for free for as long as you need me. If you can just let me leave for a couple of weeks and go, you know, PA or do whatever on a commercial shoot so I could just make rent. And that was how I got my foot in the door as a working as a free intern in the photography world. This is for Kate Jones. Yeah. We just pause for a second and talk about how these I'm assuming your photographer teacher in high school was white. Yes. And then this guy who told you that you weren't creative, he was white, too. Yes, he was. What is it about these white men telling you, taking, telling you how you should be? I'm sorry, like I can't move past that. I know, and you know, it took me a long time to realize that it was these guys who I let get into my head, and it's only the last year, actually, last few years, and now, you know, when I'm like, heck no, I think that we kind of started off in a different time when we really looked to authority for permission. You know, we looked up to our teachers, we looked up to like the people who we thought were like the best in the industry as the totem of information. It's kind of heartbreaking, actually, to realize that I thought like that for so long. I couldn't get past it. I was like, when you talked about your teacher and the comment that he made that the work had no substance... And then for this this guy to tell you that you're not creative, when obviously he's wrong. <laughs> What's interesting is it took a woman to accept me, to take me on. You know, here is a really high-end British fashion photographer who grew up in fashion. You know, her father is the, the founder and creator of ID Magazine, which is such a prestigious, iconic magazine. And so here's this woman who basically took me on for someone who didn't know anything about photography, didn't know anything about the fashion world, and let me learn by just being on set with her, working with her in the studio. Because of that, it, it really opened that door into the photography world, and I used my knowledge of production to help her on set, which translated really well for me. So I took that knowledge of working on really big sets and by the time that I was producing for small photo shoots, it was like nothing because you don't have to deal with sound. You have to deal with 50 crew people. It's basically what carried me. And it's also like what I still use to produce for my own shoots and pay the rent when I need to produce for someone else. I love production. <laughs> but I'd love to chat about walking in the studio in Kate Jones's studio. Can you tell me what that felt like? And I'd love for you to paint the picture of where you parked the car, walking in, and how did you feel when you walked in her studio? I'm trying to get at, there's this one photographer in uh, here in Chicago who's my mentor. I always considered her as my mentor and recently she we, we had a conversation and I told her and she's like, oh, Martine, I've always felt like that we are more friends than me being your mentor. But I was like, no, but I just love you because she has this career that is just beautiful. Like I love her personality. I love the way she carries herself on set and I learned so much from her and I love her work and her work ethic. Like I love everything about her. Her name is Kelly Allison. The first time I walked in her studio, I felt as if I was walking into my future. From 
the furniture that she had, from how everything was organized, I felt like, oh my goodness, this is me in five years. This is me having production meetings with my, my studio manager. And I don't know if, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I wonder right. if along being a PA for many years, if you ever had that that moment where you could see yourself in the future or if you could see your future self. It's interesting, like you never realize that moment is happening to you until you reflect back on it because everything always just happens so fast, right? You know, and now I think about it, you know, I, I remember walking into Kate's place and her studio was based out of her house in Topeka Canyon. So she had this beautiful house on the hills and her studio is filled with all her medium format archives. This is when she was just transitioning from film to digital and it was like this world that I didn't know. And she basically gave me a peek into the highest level of fashion photography because when I was starting out with her, she brought me on to Harper's Bazaar and French L. It was like this level of fashion that I just didn't understand, you know, like, especially in Southern California, it's not known for its fashion. So this world was something that I could be a part of as soon as she opened that curtain for me. But it took me a while for me to even grasp that I was a creative person. I was just trying to learn in that learning curve of never going to officially a, a photo school. I was just like, I just, I just want to learn and I just want to be a part of the world. So she basically opened a world for me, but because I was so new in photography, I was just a sponge. And it wasn't until a few years later when I started to really understand when I was testing and I was trying to build my portfolio was when I really saw that world like as my future. It took a lot of years of me unpacking the people who told me like, you're not creative, you can't do this. Just being among like the best of the best makeup artists, fashion stylists, and then working on Kate on all these high-end fashion editorials. It just basically showed me this world that I didn't even know existed. That's amazing. And the reason why I say that is because it really does take someone investing in you to help you see what it really means, right? To, to do the work and to do the work well. And until you see it, you can't really, I guess you fumble your way through. Definitely a lot of fumbling. Part of the journey is unpacking those limiting beliefs that you've kind of acquired along the way. And it seems that at a certain point, you have to pull over and just put them on the side of the road and then drive off. One thing I, I learned a lot that I didn't even realize until recently is that for all of my 20s, I held on to these limiting beliefs because as people of color, I didn't know that there would be so many instances in my life that made me feel so uncomfortable, you know, with the subtle racism here or there, or like the microaggressions that I just thought was normal, which is terrible for me to say, but it's also like something that I just didn't even understand until the last few years where I was like, wait a second, this is not how it should be. Yeah. For me, I didn't realize it either until a few years ago when I started noticing a pattern in my emotions. And I would notice like every few months I would just get into this deep, deep funk. I didn't realize what it was until I started talking through it. And I realized, oh, and I described this as kind of like wearing a coat to protect you against all the racism that you encounter on a daily basis as a person of color. And over time, each interaction singes that coat. And then after a while, there's yeah. like, there's, there's no protection between you and those incidents and you wow. have to go back and just either get a new coat or just add more add another layer just so that you could keep protecting yourself and I didn't realize it until it happened a few months ago well no a, a few years ago and I reached out to some friends and we chatted about it and I was like oh my gosh this has been happening happening for 15 years of my life and I've just been putting it together and it's yeah that's what's so crazy is that it took us that long 
I mean, I would say it's the same thing for me. It took me 15 years to realize all throughout high school, all throughout college, and then, you know, in my 20s working, how this has been happening to me for years, but I didn't see it. And I didn't have the vocabulary and the understanding until recently to realize this is the reason why I've been feeling the way I felt or, you know, pushed my work in a certain direction, which is something that I think has a huge impact on my self-esteem as a photographer. But regardless, you just, you kept going too, right? Like you were, it sounds like you were doing that work while assisting and while being a PA. And you were a PA to Colette de Barros, who is my, one of my favorite photographers. Is that how you pronounce her name? I think she does say it like really cool in French. Colette de Barreau. <laughs> she's amazing. She's, she's so good at what she does. And I admire her ability to capture her lifestyle, like seamless and flawless. It's, it's amazing watching her work. Because you've PA'd for a number of years, you've seen so many different ways of operating, of creating energy on set. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've taken pieces from this person or pieces from that person and in terms of creating your own style? Or did you at all, or did you just observe and decide how you were going to proceed in the future? Definitely a lot of observation for me. I've been on set either, you know, doing PAing, production coordinating, or as a producer, or even sometimes a photo assistant with many different photographers on different levels of their career. And what I've seen is that the ones that are really successful are very knowledgeable in all aspects of the shoot, whether it's engaging with the crew, communicating exactly what they want technically, and stylistically communicating with the talent, having a producer on set or, you know, having a very calm set and also being, having always prepared visually, knowing exactly what you want. Those are all different pieces that I've learned from being on set with so many different types of photographers. And I took that for me, knowing that I didn't want to have a yelling, swearing type of set. i basically made in my mind that I never, ever want that to be my environment. Well, let's talk about your full-time job that you took. Can you can you tell us why you decided to take a full-time job, first of all? When I decided to go full-time, I was heavily in debt with my credit cards, and I also was going to get married. And I didn't have the steady income to save and pay off anything. So I was like, okay, let me try going full-time for a little bit. And I started working at this startup fashion company and their photographer was uh, Paolo Kodaki, who who is like one of the best current fashion photographers out there, I think, right now. She's really amazing at capturing celebrities and fashion that I think is really unique to her style. And I wanted that opportunity to produce for her and and see how she worked. So I, I took on this job. And what I didn't realize was that I hadn't worked in an office since 2009. And working in an office where it's run by women should be a really supportive environment, but it ended up wearing me down a lot on my esteem and as a person because there was a lot of microaggressions with subtle racism in the office. And there's a lot of cattiness that I didn't know existed until you work in an office environment. And it really tore me down. And I, and I knew I was really good at my job, but when you have a company of people who don't understand what you do and how you do it, and they question everything that you do. It just really made me unhappy. And it it helped, it made me question, you know, what is it that I'm doing that makes them see me like this? And I, I, I didn't realize that until after I left the job that it was definitely a lot of subtle racism in the office. And it's kind of a hard thing to say, but it's, it's like, 
Well, you don't have to say the name of the company, but do you mind sharing a few examples of what you encountered? Well, there is definitely a lot of favoritism in the office. So the people of color, it's a company that is founded by women and their slogan is, you know, for women made by women. And the CEO is a woman. Most of the company was all women. But for the people who were all people of color, if we had suggestions, we were not taken seriously by the CEO. Whereas like someone who was younger and tended to be Caucasian got more favoritism, their ideas were taken seriously. I was dismissed a lot on my work. She, you know, the CEO would tell me, I know you work hard, but I still don't know what you do. And if you don't want to be here, then, you know, why are you here? And I'm like thinking in my head, if I, if you know I work so hard, why would I even be doing, why would I even be working that hard here at this company if I didn't want to be here? Is this a shoe company? Yes. Do they do footwear? Yeah. That is so interesting. Oh, I used to like, I have to say, I used to like their their products. Their products are actually quite good, but the culture of women supporting women was not what I encountered as a person of color there. Unfortunately, what I did was I sank back into the model minority uh, ideal of, okay, well, if I just stay quiet and I work as hard as I possibly can and I turn in all my deadlines, then the CEO will finally see what I do and respect me. And in fact, that just made her like more irritated and dismiss me even more. I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry you had to go through that. But because of that, it not only helped me become determined to do my project that I came up with, it forced me to recognize all the feelings that I finally had, that I had over the years that I didn't even realize what it was. I feel like that time that I took working full time was an ability to reevaluate what I wanted to be as a photographer, what I wanted to do as a business owner. You know, I, I realized that I didn't want to work for anyone else other than myself after that. And it made me a better producer as well because I was able to produce at the highest level for a top-notch photographer. So this seems like a perfect segue to talk about your Almost Asian, Almost American project. Did you start this project directly after leaving this company? I started the project a month after I quit my job and the feeling of Trump and the era of anti-Asian was starting to really wear on me. And I felt like it was really important to tell these women's stories. But what's interesting is that it took me two years from the conception of the project. So I, I, I thought of this project back in 2016 and I kept on thinking about it, but I couldn't, I didn't do anything about it. Like I didn't put the project together. I didn't I, I just, I was scared to do it. And then it was only after I quit my job when I finally felt like I had, like it was really important for me to tell this story about Asian women because there's so many stories that we don't see, especially as an Asian American woman, you know, being here and growing up in the States. So you had the idea how did you go about producing it? And the reason why I ask is that there are some people who are going to listen to this podcast and we've been talking about producing so much. Mm -hmm. And the success, as you and I know, of a photo shoot really isn't all of the details. Definitely. right? And especially since this is a personal project, can you tell us about how you drafted it, how you started producing it? to make sure that you achieved your desired outcome. When I was working at the company in 2018, I discovered this one website called The Cosmos. And it was an Asian American woman company that supports and empowers Asian American. And it was just starting out. There wasn't any information on their website other than that was their mission. And I was like, this is really interesting. I'm just gonna email 
their company and see if this is something that they would want to do. Maybe they have a roster of people that they know that I could photograph. Turns out that it's just run by two women. One was based in San Francisco and one was based in New York. And this woman, Karen, she heard my project and really believed in me. She's like, this could be really amazing. And she basically put things in motion by saying, okay, Diana, you just need to set out a date. And when you set out a date, we'll blast it out on our newsletter and see if we can get anybody. And then I started asking people that I knew and people that they knew who would be, who wanted to be a part of the project. And what I did was I started out with a questionnaire on, uh, online and had people fill that out. And based on those questions and their answers in what they wanted to tell me about themselves is, you know, me putting together a shoot. And I chose, uh, 11 women over the course of a weekend and I photographed them as well as interviewed them. It was just one weekend of me getting any woman who was basically available because like no one knew what this project looked like. So like these women had these this blind trust in me to do this project. I guess what I can say is this project started in my head because I always felt uncomfortable being an Asian American, being Chinese American actually. I felt uncomfortable in both how I look and how I identified. I grew up feeling like an outsider because I didn't really fit into the conventional definition of of Asian beauty or American beauty. And, you know, no matter which side I try to fit in, why are you so curvaceous for an Asian? You know, what are you? What's your background? And that feeling really lasted with me for a long time. And, you know, when I started out in photography over 10 years ago, I didn't really see that many images of Asians. And when it was an image of an Asian person, it was, you know, obviously a beautiful East Asian model from China or Japan who was, you know, that exception. I didn't see Asian Americans. And when I tried to also photograph Asians in, in my portfolio, I felt like my portfolio wasn't taken as seriously. So this project was just for me to photograph and celebrate Asian beauty in a way that I've never seen myself represented because I think like to be an American and also to be that hyphenated, you know, in front is something that we can identify as Americans, but it's not something that we see represented. And I wanted to ask these women if they felt the same way as I did. And I didn't realize that a lot of women have the exact same feelings of this in-betweenness of not feeling Asian enough and not feeling American enough, even though we were, you know, born and raised in America. And what kind of questions did you ask them in your questionnaire that you sent out? I asked them questions like, what is your idea of Asian beauty? What is your idea of American beauty? And did you fit into that standard? Did you ever feel less than because of how you looked and what is something that you grew up with pop culture wise that you try to fit in with but didn't fit in with I mean for me it's more about I think sharing that experience putting into the words like I said like all these years I didn't realize I was so uncomfortable until recently and and now like when I hear these women's stories about their experiences of being told from their family like you're too dark you're too fat why can't you be like this and you know non-Asians who will have like the opposite but it's 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 a very weird feeling to to have your entire life so you know, I, I really wanted to capture that with this project. When I first saw the images from this project, Diana, I gasped. And I think I got really emotional. And I'm getting emotional now as um, I heard you talking. Because I think at the end of the day, these women are beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I think they're so beautiful. They're it's so beautiful. And when you... 
hear that they're told that they're not beautiful you're like what planet are these people who are saying these things what planet are they living on i know um, right but they're all beautiful in their own way with their darker skin with their their hair not necessarily being what a traditional asian beauty and i'm using quotes people can't see us but i'm using quotes air quotes and i really that project resonated with me because i feel like it digs into what we as immigrants in this immigrants as well as people of color in this country experience which is degree of culture right mm -hmm. that as an asian well I, i'll speak from my experience as a black person you're never quite american um you have to be hyphenated and if you're american if you're black you may not be black enough <laughs> yeah. you might not have the traditional like black beauty because i i have dark skin when you flip through magazines and when i was growing up too the models or the the images of some of the black people that you would see they would all be very fair and they would have long hair and there was always this feeling of not being enough and yeah it was amazing to see your project and to see these gorgeous women and how they were told that they weren't enough it resonated with me on a on a really deep level so i really appreciate it that you did this work all in one weekend girl yeah. that's crazy well, <laughs> i mean here's the thing my my idea for this project was to do la and then you know use this project put it out and then get more people to sign up. So I started this in 2018 and I was like, okay, in 2019, I'll put this out and I will get more people and I'm gonna start traveling to different cities to photograph people on the East Coast and the South, you know, up in Chicago. Like I wanted to do different cities. And so I, I applied to several grants and I kept on getting rejected by these grants. And I, again, this is, this is my this is my bad here, but I let these rejections get to my head, and I thought, well, you know, they don't want to fund a project like this. They aren't interested. This is a boring project, and I let that fear and also the the anxiety of spending my own money. You know, I didn't want to go more heavily in debt, and to travel to different cities would take a lot, and so I just I just let this project like sit on the back burner for a couple of years until this year when it got, you know, during the pandemic, like, you know, I started reading about all the stories about anti-Asian uh, attacks that I, I felt like it was so important to tell these women's stories and I owed it to them. And so now I'm trying to continue this project of photographing women now in, in Nashville, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a definite process because I can't just shoot everyone all in the course of two days. I have to shoot people outside two at a time before. <laughs> so it's a lot slower process. And then now trying to figure out how I can photograph women in different cities is another question for me. But I'm sorry to hear that you couldn't get funding. I will support your project. I like I just... I feel in some ways too that there needs to be maybe artists that we need to kind of like have a artist GoFundMe thing <laughs> where we fund each other's projects because that's a project I want to see. I think it's so important. I want to ask how you came to photograph it and to do the video the way that you decided to because it's very it's very specific. I mean, it's high key. It's mm -hmm. it, you're shooting these women against a white, bright white background, and they're mm -hmm. all being shot from basically chest level up. How did you decide to do it this way? I decided to light it very specifically like that because, first of all, I wanted to emphasize the woman's facial features. And I think that when you take away the background, when you take away clothing and jewelry, and it's just the face, you take away all distractions. And, you know, one of the things that I grew up with seeing a lot of imagery with Asians in it is that they're usually lit very flat. And, you know, I, I quickly discovered that you can't light 
you know, a different skin tone, a different face, facial features with the same lighting as you would with like a, a Caucasian model. I really wanted to focus specifically on the face and to concentrate on just their features. And I decided that if they're not going to wear any sort of makeup, and I'm going to do minimal retouching. Like, I'm not going to take away their wrinkles. I'm not going to take away their blemishes. Lighting that just emphasized and highlighted their best features. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's easy for us to do a lighting setup and said, we'll fix it all in Photoshop, right? And, or, you know, with the age of social media, I know we could put a filter on things. And I, I just really wanted to capture their beauty as I, I saw it. They may not have necessarily have that perception of themselves, but I really want to show them as how I, I think of them as, as beautiful. And so I, I thought lighting was the main thing to make them as beautiful as possible. And by taking away all that distraction, putting them all in a plain background, you only have to concentrate on the face. And how did you decide on doing video too? Because you did, you, you did stills and you did a bit of motion. I thought it was important to give a voice to the woman because, you know, you can look at a picture and you can still create the story in your mind. But if you can really hear their experiences, it really conceptualizes what they've dealt with. I think that story element is what makes it a little more real to people because it's easy to just see something and, you know, be like, oh, that's nice. But when you really hear what's beneath it, it, it adds a layer of complexity, I think. And then also a layer of complexity to my project, which I wasn't prepared for until I started it. But, you know, that's another thing. How was that for you to create? Because you're a stills photographer. You know, you do stills primarily. Right. Was it difficult for you to also do motion? The motion part wasn't difficult, but it's the editing part. You know, learning, when I first learned how to edit, it was on Avid back in 2006. And so, like, obviously editing has changed tremendously since then, and now we're using Premiere Pro. And so learning to just edit and sync sound and having good audio was all things that I had to learn. And usually when you have a motion set, you have a bigger crew, but the crew is just me and my husband. So I'm doing the stills and the video portion. And then he's there holding a microphone. <laughs> How did you feel after having these women come in and then hearing their stories? Were you surprised by what you heard? I felt a big sense of burden lifted, actually. When I heard these women's stories, it validated how I felt for the longest time. And it was almost like this cathartic release of knowing that I wasn't alone and everything that I felt growing up, I wasn't crazy for thinking how I felt. It was almost like once I did that portion of the project, I was like, oh, I can just move on with my life. And then, you know, but I, I couldn't because I had to actually put it out. Did you grow up with other Chinese families around? Where did you grow up? So I, I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, Northern California. And I definitely grew up in a more diverse neighborhood. Um, I'm an only child. My mom spoke Mandarin to me, but I didn't live with her. I lived with my dad and my dad only spoke English to me. So, and he was, he was really adamant in only speaking English at home because I think he, you know, when he immigrated here to the States, he had such a hard time with language that he didn't want me to have that type of barrier. And unfortunately, now I've lost my Chinese speaking ability. I, I didn't grow up with like Chinese culture. I didn't really read or write Chinese. I mean, I ate Chinese food. There wasn't any sort of different traditions that, you know, Chinese normally have. Like my, my parents just didn't do any of that. They didn't force me to go to Chinese school. And I was a latchkey kid. So I, I basically was just raised on television. <laughs> uh, I think I was too. Yeah. Being a first-generation American, like, I think my parents were just concerned about putting food on the table. And as long as I was healthy and alive, like, they're, they're, they're like, okay, you just do your thing and we'll, we'll keep working. Like, that was their <laughs> attitude. 
So I didn't really grow up necessarily with a lot of family. You know, I had my cousins, but I, I didn't grow up with that much family. I didn't have a lot of Asian friends until actually after college is when I started to have Asian friends. In those relationships that you you fostered with your Asian friends, did you start like unpacking some of this? Did you talk about some of these similar feelings that you were having? No, none of, we, we never talked about it. It's not something that I think any of us ever addressed. It's also interesting that the Asian friends that I gravitated towards, you know, half of them are very proudly Asian. They grew up in their, you know, with their family and speaking the language and being raised in the culture. And half of us grew up in um, an English-speaking home with no Asian culture. It's a mix of people, but we, we never talked about it. It was not something that you know, you just bring up in a friendly conversation like, oh, hey, you know, what did you have for lunch? And oh, how'd you feel growing up alone? Okay. You know, <laughs> I, I think we black people, I don't want to talk for the race, <laughs> but uh, we talk about race all the time. <laughs> My husband who's white. He says, you, you guys are always talking about this. I was like, yeah, because we need to. Um, yeah, because it hurts. No, it's... it's just stings. It's just it hurts. Only now that I'm unpacking it, I am talking about it. And, and like with, you know, Black Lives Movement and everything that's happening with COVID-19 and the anti-racism towards people of color and Black people and especially Asians now, like it's the most important thing that we can talk about. That your project has kind of changed the way that people are talking or at least the way Asians are talking about living in America and their experiences with racism? That's something I'm not sure about, to be honest. Like, I think I know that my perspective has changed. And my only hope is that I can provide a little bit of understanding and empathy for people to realize that this is what we have to deal with as people of color. You can't change how people want to think or say by telling them to change, as we all know in our current climate of our president. I think we can just be optimistic and hoping that by sharing our stories that someone will understand what we have to go through and just that little bit of understanding can can change them, right? That's our ultimate hope. You're now living in Nashville. So you are in L.A., and now you're in Nashville and in COVID. Whenever you move, you know, you have to start and kind of rebuild your your network in a new in a new city, in a new country, whatever. And certainly with COVID, that might have derailed your plans a little. Can you tell me what you're working on now? When I moved to Nashville, my husband and I wanted to start working in the music industry. It's something that he has been working towards for all his life. And being in L.A., he didn't have that opportunity. So I said for us to try out Nashville because it's a music city and to just try out something for him. And then we also saw that as an opportunity for us to be creatives for musicians in this city. And so we decided to form a creative duo called Kevin and King. Kevin and King is supposed to exist as a duo that does high production value and more creative in the terms of, of you know, lighting and different elements to really elevate the artist. Whereas like you know, my photography, I, I do a lot of portraits and I capture more intimate moments with, you know, my models and talents. And so that was like the difference of us trying something new here in Nashville, you know, wanting to shoot for these music artists. And right when we were starting to do that, um, COVID-19 happened and then the whole music industry shut down. So we haven't, we started the company in the beginning of the year and then we just haven't worked since then, <laughs> starting since March, since it's been a lockdown. 
And I was going to ask you, how's Nashville? But you probably haven't left your house. I haven't left my house. I'm very, very grateful, though, to have a house. And that's something that I didn't have in Los Angeles that I'm very appreciative of. And I have a backyard. I know that I'm in a special position of privilege just having this here compared to so many people. For a bit of levity, can we talk about the rock star in your family? Or at least the... <laughs> Your dog. <laughs> my dog. My dog, Wally the Woodle. Who has a huge Instagram following. <laughs> I tried to bring up his Instagram following to be higher, but it actually made, I actually have to post three, four times a day. And the fact that I don't even post that many times for my own Instagram tells me that he had the potential to be a star and I just, I failed him as his dog agent. Uh, his dog agent, which I'm sure that exists. <laughs> I'm sure there is. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So I'd love to start wrapping up now. Is there any question that I didn't ask that you want to talk about that I didn't bring up? I feel like you like went deep. I felt like that was a really deep conversation. <laughs> I don't know what else. Well, I was just asking questions that made me really curious. I think it's interesting to know someone and to know of someone and to really talk to them about what inspires them and why do they do what they do. I, I remember meeting you and being so wowed by you. I felt the same way towards you. You're like a sunshine. I remember you wore that like yellow dress and I was just like, who is that girl talking to everybody? I need to know her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we farm, we form our little posse. So that was really fun. But it was so good to sit with you and to go through your portfolio and just to see what you've done and to see some of the lighting that you've used. And oftentimes when I am creating a lighting setup for a shoot, I have my WWD, what would Diane, WWDD, what would Diana do? No way. I am not joking. I'm like, what would she do? And then I think about your lighting and I think about your, the way that you utilize color and the way that you create mood. And I'm like, what would she do? And then I, I think about, okay, so now I know what she would probably do. Now, what would I do? And I've always found you, I, I go back to you as a sense, um, as a source of inspiration, um, not only because of the wonderful energy that you always bring, um, but also because of your kindness and because you're so damn talented, girl. I can only say the same thing about you. Like, I, I have a total girl crush on you. I have a girl like crush on you. <laughs> and and in fact like I think that you know as I've gotten older in and you know over the years as a photographer my inspirations have changed from you know back in the day when you know our our go-to photographers is like oh Richard Avedon Irving Penn right like Helmut and Newton these are all old white guys and now you know all my photographers that I admire are either my friends or women photographers now creating really interesting work because just that alone like has made me more inspired and motivated to to do what I do because you know just seeing like oh wow like if she can do that I can also do that it's it's a huge booster like coming from a world of not having any sort of support from women you know instead of like women building each other up it was a lot of like who's going to be better and type of attitude and now I, I I finally feel like it's it's about like women supporting women it's it's like I truly feel it now when you were talking about the office job that you held and you said um something to the you said something about you didn't know that this was what office culture was like and I can tell you my first work experience was not like that at all we were five or six women um, in this one organization. And I have to tell you, Diana, that I still um, am in touch with these women. It, it was such a wonderful experience. I learned That's so awesome. much about 
production, honestly, from my yeah. boss, Betty McNally. And we were all on a Zoom a few weeks ago. And, you know, when you, whenever I'm in a situation where I find people toxic, and I always think, I don't need to be in this situation. I don't need to be friends with these people. I, it's a choice. Um, mm-hmm. And relationships don't have to be toxic. And mm-hmm. when they are, it's because people have chosen it to be that way, you know? Definitely. Or they've created it. Um, so I am so grateful for you. And now I'm for a bit of levity. <laughs> I, I, can we do some quick fire questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Perfect. Hardcore coffee. Okay. Favorite movie that you've seen over and over again? Off the top of my head, Back to the Future. We just rewatched the whole series. It's one of my favorites. I love it. Um, I'm also a big cartoon person, so I watch a lot of Pixar. Oh, you do? I do. I love I love me my Pixar. Which I love ones do you like? Finding Nemo. Um, I just watched Toy Story 4 again, which I bawled. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, those just off the top of my head, Back to the Future, but so many, so many amazing movies. I love but- Back to the Future. Um, and I love Pixar, too, uh, because of their sense of, sto- of storytelling. The way they tell stories are really... It's amazing to me. And one of the designers, I'll try to find the link to send to you and maybe even put it in your show notes, talked about how they create highs and lows from frame to frame to frame. Just knowing the behind the scenes of how they create those films is amazing. And I always try to think about that. A little uh, film geeky knowledge. Uh, In college, we did a film analysis paper on Finding Nemo. And it is actually, if you break down the script, it is the perfect script in terms of if you break down the elements of what makes an engaging story, it hits every single element of the script in the highs and lows, climax, the protagonist, the antagonist. It's it's kind of amazing to break down a cartoon and realize it hits every single one of those points. Now you have me really interested in terms of what makes an engaging story. And I have a book somewhere here on, what is it called? It's a book on how to tell stories and what makes a really good story. And I think I'm going to ask you for a reading list. (laughs) Because when we talk about our work, we have to tell stories. And that's what makes people really engaged. So I'll I'll reach back out to you to, to get information on that. Perfect. So can you tell us how to stay in touch with you? You can find me on Instagram on Diana W. King. And you can go to my website, diana-king.com. Perfect. And then that's where they'll be able to see your your project, your Almost Asian project. Definitely. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. I hope that you, you'll continue it. And hopefully... I'm maybe- trying. Well, I think maybe we could um, have a chat about how to find you some money to continue. I am definitely open for that. That's uh, another world that I'm sure us creatives always need help in, finding finding the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's always there. Um, Diana, thank you so much for talking with us. I am... I love you so much. You're just such an amazing person. And I feel so lucky to call you a friend and to call you a colleague. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on.